Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, listeners. In this episode, we're joined by Katie King, CEO of AI in Business. Katie joins us to discuss how to integrate AI in your sales and marketing strategy. Katie has recently released an awesome new book called AI Strategy for Sales and Marketing. And as listeners of this podcast, you can get 20% off the book with the code PMK20. Just head to our publisher, koganpage.com, and enter the code during checkout. That code again is PMK20 at koganpage.com. The code and link to our publisher will be also included in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. This is Internet Marketing. So I want to know all about your learning experience and when AI came on your radar. So if you could fire away and start the journey there for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a really good question because... I am not a technologist, so I'm not teaching people how to code in Python and TensorFlow. I'm teaching organizations how to apply AI. But I have a background in tech. I have a degree in languages and an MBA, but I've spent my whole 30-year career helping tech companies. And at one point, and I'm going back to around 2016, I was working in the construction sort of property tech space and I got heavily involved there and could see how AI was being used with smart cities and those sorts of areas. And it really lit that fire for me. And it was way ahead at that time. And I started to apply that. I got paid by the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors to write a white paper on AI. And then I realized this is going to completely change my industry of marketing, public relations, comms, sales. And that's how it got started, Scott. That's really interesting. And what resonates with me is I don't come from a particularly technical background. So I'm not a developer. I'm not a data scientist in any way. But I have a fascination as a lot of people do with AI. And sometimes it feels like maybe a career in AI is unattainable for me. Maybe other people feel that way because I don't have that technical background. Did you have those same kind of feelings when starting out and when developing this interest, enthusiasm and career in AI? Most definitely. I think we might call it imposter syndrome. And I always stress that point of I'm not here to teach you how to code. There's enough amazing people that can do that. But I think what I've built up, and I wrote the first book in 2019, and the second one just came out a couple of months ago. If you build, if you put the effort in and you come up with some fantastic intellectual property, that's in demand. So I haven't felt that for the last few years since I put myself you know, through that and did all of the work and came up with this incredible content. But I certainly did at the very beginning, yes. Um, but what I'm trying to do all the time at age 55 is keep trying to stay ahead. And so by seeing what's coming down the line and putting myself out of my comfort zone and, and trying to second guess how this is going to work, you know, you are ahead of the pack and therefore there aren't that many people who are doing what you're doing. So the imposter syndrome isn't quite so strong then. Yeah. Authoring two books on AI will definitely kill a little bit of that imposter syndrome, I imagine. Absolutely. (laughs) So credit to you for that. Thank you. There's something really interesting to uh, what you said there in terms of staying ahead. So it's something we experience in marketing, this constant desire to learn and 
and also maybe the fear of not being up to date with the latest information. So it's kind of a catch-22 situation. And I'm just interested to know, just on the point about AI and learning, do you have structure to your learning? Do you still feel that way about needing or wanting to keep up to date with the latest information? You need to. So Mm. I'm training people regularly. I mean, you know, weekly, I'm consulting, I'm giving keynote speeches. So what I wrote that came out in 2019 and what I wrote that came out in January of this year gets out of date fairly quickly. It's got a shelf life of a year or two. But yes, I need to find amazing resources. And that might be World Economic Forum. It might be the people I listen to as part of the all-party parliamentary group. It might be Bain, McKinsey, the FT. So I find credible sources, the vendors, the IBM Watsons and others, and also what other people are doing in the marketing space. And there are always new tools that maybe I haven't yet come across. So it is this journey of continuous learning, this curious Mm -hmm. mind that I've always had and effort. You know, let's be honest, if you want to thrive, you have to put in the effort rather than just sort of survive where you're catching up all the time. Mm. And from what I understand, you have two aspects to AI in business, which is the training and the consultancy, which I kind of separate out in my mind as different services. Is that how you treat them as well? Yes, I do. Yeah, they completely overlap. Um, Of course they do. You know, you're training people and and I've been doing this for quite a few years. You know, you might be training them on how to adopt AI in their sales and marketing. And that might be a training course, you know, face-to-face or um, virtual. And then you might be doing consultancy along the same lines and you might be helping them source vendors and teach their teams how to onboard and so on. So they are similar, um, different formats, but similar type of approach and consultation and use of case studies and frameworks and so on. And I'm really interested to know if there are any trends in specifically the people or businesses that reach out to you for training in AI what kind of questions are you being asked? What kind of training needs do people have? I'm, I'm curious to know whether it's very general and whether people want to learn the basics and fundamentals of AI or whether you're getting very specific quests to help build or understand different aspects of AI. Yeah, that's a greatly good question. Certainly a few years ago, it was much more generic. You know, they were worried about the hype and so on. Now they're interested in, I don't want to be left behind. I want to seize some of these benefits that I could see others are gaining by using that concured tool that you uh, talked about on that virtual event recently or that profit PR tool that you're using. So I think on the whole, they're now thinking about a trigger of, benefit and return on investment and making sure they don't lose their market share and so on. So I think it's a commercial trigger, definitely. I think about your book and use this terminology that I'd not seen before, which was AI winter. And then you described an AI summer that might be ahead. Uh, Where do you think we are at the moment in an AI summer? I think we are in in Mm. spring going into summer. Um, I really do. I think that the reason, I mean, AI, AI has been around, you know, since the 1950s. And when we talk about AI winters, we're saying it had great promise, but it hasn't really taken off. Why is that? Two main reasons. One is the lack of data then, and now we have it because we've had, you know, 15 or more years of, of smartphone technology. And the other was the processing power. Now that we have that climate right for it, and therefore the venture capitalists and others have invested in it and the startups have you know arisen and so on yes i do think we are what it doesn't mean and not pretending that we are seeing ai adoption at scale you know across marketing sales and customer services we're not um but i yes i think we are in a i mean of course then along came covid and in many ways that accelerated the digitization So you need to be digitized to take advantage of AI because you need that data. But maybe it put people's brakes on budget or it made them focus on getting through the pandemic and and so on and all of the other challenges that came with that. But I do think we're ready and I do think it depends on your industry sector as well. It's interesting because it makes me think that maybe 10 years ago, 
maybe we were in an AI winter and businesses or people maybe were more skeptical about AI or maybe there weren't as many use cases. And now that people are exposed to these use cases more frequently, perhaps that means that as with anything, if you're an early adopter in something, it typically pays off. And as time goes on, that window of opportunity decreases and maybe people are experiencing that moment where that window of opportunity people are thinking well i really need to get ahead in the future here and if i don't capitalize on my investment in ai now maybe i'll be left behind in the future and that's what's triggering people to discuss ai training a little bit more is that something yes, you're sensing 100 and in fact caroline gorski from rolls royce uh, who feature prominently in the book says exactly that 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 window is closing um, it doesn't mean you will get be left behind, but to your point, you won't be ahead of the pack. So, you know, we probably won't be talking about AI in three or four years. I think we won't care how these things work, just as we don't care how our smartphones work, do we? We don't care about the technology within them. Whereas AI has been so new re- in recent years, the media hype, and we think of the Gartner hype cycle, there is a lot of emphasis around the tech. And I think going forward, we won't worry about the tech so much. So yes, definitely that window, get on board while you can, if you want to be ahead of the pack. And where do people start with that? So are there any common principles, resources where you recommend people can start learning about AI? Definitely. I mean, of course, there's my book, there's training courses we run, but there are, you know, I also want to democratize this because there are some incredible free tools out there. Um, There is an online course from the University of Helsinki called AI Essentials, which is fabulous and it's free to get people understanding the basics But also what I don't want to do is to scare people off that they need to go and learn AI. They don't. You know, if you're, it doesn't matter what age, but typically if you're studying now as a young person, um, if you're studying IT, computer science, data science, GCSE, A-level degree, amazing. You know, you're going to be in demand. If you're like many of us that are different stages in our career, you'll need to learn about how AI is applied. You'll need to think about um, being open to maybe having a, a slightly more technical mindset, but you don't need to go and learn how to code. And so, you know, what we're talking about here is making them think about how do I get started? And in my second book, I have a framework called the standardized framework, and it takes you through all of the steps. And it's as the word says, standardized. And each of those letters talks about strategy and time and data and agility and so on. So I think it's those principles as well of what approach do I take to AI? That might be ethics, it might be resources. I think that's as important for the people that aren't looking to become the ones that are the the data scientists, the rest of us that need to make sure this works in our business. They're probably more of the AI learning principles they need to go and learn about and think about. Are there any roles that you're seeing in AI that are becoming increasingly in demand outside of the technical roles? Well, that's a good question. Um, Well, of course, we've seen, you know, the chief data officers and those kinds of roles um, increasing, but not yet, not not as such, apart from those ones that in recent years, like the CISO, you know, the, the security officer and the data officer and so on, those have certainly been less about AI and more about digitization. So, no, not really. More have been the data scientist um, tech people. And I think that will come. I think that will come as more AI is used in-house in business functions like PR, marketing, comms, sales, and in agencies, I think job titles will probably change and evolve. Yeah, I think about, we'll touch on this later as we're talking as well, but the role for the person that's responsible for the 
um, I guess, ethical guidelines or ethical mm-hmm. control within AI as well. I'd imagine that dedicated roles in that area are going to be necessary in the future. Yes, and you have seen that creep in in, in mm. the last year or so, like the AI ethics advisor. Mm-hmm. And I've been that on somebody's board um, mm. for the last six months. And I think it helps companies if they're raising funds and, and so on. So I do think uh, some people it's a nod to, yes, we're taking AI. AI seriously, and we are looking at the ethics and so on. So certainly that side, yes. I want to move into the consultancy aspect of what you do and a very similar question. So the triggers that are causing people to get in touch. And in this area, what I'm really interested to know, are people coming to you with just ideas, plans, prototypes, or a range of all of those things? A range of all of them, to be honest with you. Yes, some people do not know where to start. Some people want advice as to which vendors, how do they actually do their due diligence and, you know, put get that on board. Um, how do they plan for the next three years and how should AI feature in that journey. So it is a, it is a number of those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, the problems that they might be considering could be how do we automate this task so that we free up our staff to do high value projects and actually we save some cost and we get closer to our customer. So, you know, those kinds of things. Sometimes, and I won't name names, but there's a um, an organization in the publishing world that would be basically be redesigning the services that they offer their readers using machine learning, which did actually mean certain people were made redundant, but other roles were created in the organization. So some roles became redundant. There was some upskilling done. They were having town halls to educate staff that this wasn't, you know, the exodus and that if the organization didn't evolve, they really would go out of business and that would have meant mass redundancies. So a culture change, you know, a transformation, a rehire, a resetting of expectation is happening sometimes. Yeah, that is a fascinating example as well. And I think about people that maybe have spent 20, 30 years in a career and then suddenly, you know, you're faced with a job loss, but also faced with the opportunity to retrain. Do you think that businesses might have an obligation somewhere down the line to, as they're exploring redundancies or job changes, to invest in training, uh, reinvestment in training in AI? Yes, I think so. Yes. I mean, it's particularly, as we said earlier, the more technical people, you know, they might have fairly technical teams who are not trained in AI, and then they might take a hybrid approach of bringing in a vendor um, and allowing their own teams to learn and to be reskilled in that space. And then maybe nine months down the line, that vendor is no longer required and the teams have those skills. If it's more in a a different job function where they are less technical, then I think it's mindset change. It's understanding how it's applied to business, what the benefits are, what some of the big ethical issues are. And the training would be more around those subject areas rather than more technical training, but definitely both are are required. Um, and this could be happening to somebody in their thirties, not just somebody in their fifties and sixties. So yeah. I think that um, that will and and the you know the, there aren't the skilled people enough of those skilled people out there to 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 you know for a company to avoid doing that. So I think reskilling is essential. Mm. I appreciate you might be under NDAs um, in some cases, maybe all of them, but are you able to share any more examples, particularly on the consultancy side of the business, of either your favorite projects that you've worked on or some interesting examples of the things you're consulting on, the projects you're consulting on at the moment? Yes, and I think what I'll also do is just pull up some from the case studies. You know, yep. So there's consultancy work I do in training, but there's also all of the rich case study projects that are in the book too. So one that I think jumps out with what we've just been discussing is with Samsung. And there are big brands in the book and then there are smaller organizations, but it's very relevant to a, you know, to a sales and marketing scenario. 
So there's an amazing guy. And again, these are influencers, people you could follow on LinkedIn, for example, who are regularly putting out amazing free content and are on webinars that you can go and join and so on. So Patrick Bangert, B-A-N-G-E-R-T, is the VP of AI and he's at Samsung and he's in, in America. Um, and he talks about He's got an amazing chart, actually, and it's really simply, and we might put it in the show notes at the end, but he moves you with all of these dots, and there's um, five of them, from a situation where it's about data, then it's about information, then it's knowledge, then it's insight, then it's wisdom. And I think that's really interesting that it starts with just a mass of unstructured data and it ends with us having deep wisdom about our customers. And that's what the AI is doing. And in my first book, I had a whole chapter on what we call the paradox of personalization. People still think AI equals big shiny robot coming, taking my job. Whereas actually, infuse and give a tool to uh, a marketeer or a customer service rep, give them an AI tool and they have the superhuman powers. They can have deep granular knowledge of what the customer needs. And Patrick Bangert talks in the book about um, scheduling systems that uh, enable someone to go to a store at the right time to maximize that sales potential. And he talks about how the advertising would be sent to somebody when it's really relevant, when it's really timely to improve the chances of purchase. So this is basically about consumer tech using AI that, that really personalizes marketing, really personalizes sales. And that's what the AI can do. Our human brains are incredible, but we can't crunch and make sense of the patterns with billions of bits of data points. And the AI enables us to do that. And that's what's happening across the board with many, many different tools. It might be a PR tool. It might be a um, measuring um, insights about how our voice is being heard of our brand in the market. It might be saying to a sales team, don't waste your time on this segment and potential client. Based on the AI, this should be your go-to-market strategy. So I think the successful case studies are when People have been trained. There are subject matter experts for automotive, for example, or healthcare or whatever the sector is. And then they've got the AI tool that can help them really understand how are people purchasing? How can we capitalize on that? How can we give them incredible service so that they keep coming back to us? And that's important because that's a benefit for both sides. And for anyone that wants to study some of maybe these companies, they don't necessarily have to be companies that you've worked with, but companies that maybe you feature in your book or that you think are adopting AI in the way that you just described, who would you recommend people research? Again, it depends which angle they're looking at. The book covers lots of those. There are people like Patrick Bangard on LinkedIn. There's people like Maria Accente, A-X-E-N-T-E on LinkedIn, who is PwC, who looks at it from an ethics point of view. There's journals like the AI Journal that will regularly be featuring. There's exhibitions like the AI Summit in London or COGEX or AI Summit series that go all around the world. So I think if you look at the quality conferences and the quality journals and the um, quality consultants, then you'll soon get a feel for who's being asked you know, to go and speak. So Caroline Gorski from Rolls-Royce, um, they have a framework and they work with many brands to really help them with their transformation journey. So follow what some of the Rolls-Royce um, people have been talking about as well. Those are the kind of people I would point to. And something you touched on as you were talking, and I reflected on coming into this podcast, is that when I think of the use of AI, I think about it primarily in context of connection to the internet and online. But I'm really interested to know if there are any companies that are using AI to enhance a blended experience of both online and offline and connecting that whole journey up. 
Does any business come to mind or any examples? Mm, That's an interesting question. Well, of course, the AI requires the data. So somewhere in that journey, there is there inevitably is that um, online experience. Mm. But there are elements in many industry sectors that are still very much, you know, offline. Um, even in 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 banking, for example, there, where there might be you know phone banking and and those sorts of areas in in farming and you know. So there are industry sectors where there still is that traditional approach. But if they haven't moved some of that, you know, to a digital experience, and they're not really going to be in a situation where they can take advantage of the data, because AI effectively is big data, big data insights that augment what you're trying to do, you know, with that data. Um, So, yes, there has to be a a digital element to it, but it would be wrong for everyone to think that there still aren't very traditional approaches. You know, I still do a lot of traditional offline marketing that I've done for 30 years. Mm. But if I'm not also taking advantage of digital and even AI, then I'm not going to stay ahead. So I think it's just acknowledging that that an AR and sorry, COVID forced us all to be digital, didn't it? We had mm. no choice. Um, yes, that's how I would would really uh, frame that. There's something that really made me smile. I think it's very early on in your book, your latest book. You describe AI in context of online, and then you describe AI at home. And um, there's a note to say a few of us realize just how much AI is working around us. And I think you use example of Netflix and smart assistants and things like that around us too. Facebook, you know, I take a picture of you and I and and Facebook looks at that and instantly asks me to tag you because it's got the image recognition using AI. So yeah, it's, it's all over, isn't it? In our smart speakers. And, uh, but when I wrote my first book, people didn't really have a clue what it was. Whereas I think TV adverts from Microsoft, soft and uh, um, it's, it's just in our world more it's in our newspapers and it's in it's been online articles for for quite a few years so I think there's definitely a greater awareness but still a fear I do still see quite a lot of fear by people the thing I reflected on most from that it reminded me of in advertising when paid ads started to emerge and you would hear people say you know I'm not I'm I'm kind of blind or paid ads don't affect me or I don't see them or whatever. And um, it's funny because AI had a similar level of skepticism. I remember speaking to people 10, but like five, even five years ago, and people were a bit more skeptical. Oh, I'm not too sure whether this AI thing will last in the same way, I guess, that cryptocurrencies and blockchain and stuff are being discussed now. People Absolutely. kind of maybe th- think it's a, a fad and it will pass. And then all of a sudden, and the thing that made me smile is that there's really no escaping it. It's it's around us. It's driving things in our daily lives, even if we don't realize it. And that's only five, 10 years on from when people were probably skeptical when AI in this particular period of AI started to emerge at home, I think. Exactly. So if your listeners want more insight into that, you know, look at a typical Gartner hype cycle where you have that innovation peak and then that um you know that paranoia and that hype at that big peak and then it drops down and you've got that what we call a trough of disillusionment where and i had this with the first book where for example danish bank saxo bank had not really taken their people on their journey and educated them about what was coming so when all of a sudden they had their ai chatbots and so on a lot earlier than a lot of other people Clients were fascinated, found it a bit gimmicky and shallow, and then it didn't really work properly. And staff just weren't on board. They were fearful. And it was a failure. And they had therefore gone into that trough of disillusionment. And I think where we're beginning to come out of that is, and we're not yet there, we haven't reached that plateau of productivity, but we've come, we're coming out of that trough. And I think it's just quite an interesting time. Certainly, um, financial services and healthcare, you know, are a little bit further ahead in some pockets of what they do. But many other industry sectors are still in catch-up mode. There's something interesting on that, and you you mentioned it as you were talking a moment ago, in that the barrier to entry 
in adopting AI solutions is less now than maybe it was than what it was 10 years ago. And perhaps at one point, it was perceived that AI was something that only large corporations could invest in and benefit from. And maybe that awareness is changing. And we're seeing smaller companies being able to adopt AI solutions earlier. I'm interested to know, just technologically, why that is why is my perception is that the barrier to entry is lower now than when it was 10 years ago what's changed so it's affordable now even for a smaller company what we mean by that is let's say you are looking at um, a big investment in really digitizing your whole customer experience and having ai there and chatbots and robots and virtual assistants that's a big investment but we could also be talking about a company really taking advantage of some AI software tools for their sales and marketing that are very, very affordable. So I think the fact that there are a plethora of these tools out there that are affordable to a small and medium-sized um, organization is hugely beneficial. Um, I still think that the, the requirement for data is an interesting one because you could be a major organization like BT with, you know, billions of data points versus a tiny organization. And you might think, well, they can really take advantage of it because they've got the big data, but they might not be nimble enough. So actually the agility to flex and move and have the right mindset and do small proofs of concept might actually be quite um, a good thing for a smaller entity that is able to be much more agile. So there's many factors at play there. Are there any other common obstacles in the adoption of AI that are common between both large corporations and small businesses? Yes, I think we've touched on a couple of them already. I think you need the buy-in from the management team. And often my training and consulting is about mindset change and letting them understand how it's going to impact their sector and what the benefit's going to be in order for them to then make that investment in a year or two. So I think um, we need mindset change. We need to be thinking about an objective. So a big barrier for people often is they've wasted money because they've approached this in a very tactical way and they're not going to get benefit from it. And so you see what I mean? If they haven't done it properly and they've had a failure, they might be reluctant to do that again. So therefore, to start with clean data, to start with a, a business, clear business objective, to really think about some of the ethical considerations. And I think for a lot of people, that's too much. That's too many things to consider that make them think it's this big mammoth journey which sometimes it is, but they can be addressed relatively easily. Mm. And just on the sales and marketing point specifically, and in those different fields, you mentioned the word efficiencies, and I'm interested to know the efficiencies that you see them made. So particularly the standout tasks in sales and marketing that over time you've started to see made more efficient with the use of AI, what comes to mind? Oh, many. Um, there are so many marketing and AI tools. Uh, I think one I mentioned earlier, there are a number of tools that help you with that go-to-market strategy and help you to not waste your time on thousands of different potential clients that are never going to work with you. And so to be able to understand in a very granular way who's looking at our material are they the right profile? Are they similar to the kind of clients that we've worked with before? Can we satisfy their needs? Should we put our marketing? So, you know, various tools that enable you to do that. Um, AI tools for public relations and digital marketing that are doing the grunt work for you of you know, very manual tasks that might be about measuring the effectiveness of your messages that are going out to market. And um, again, kind of really granular public relations. Tools like Concured that will draft those messages for you. Um, there are whether it's Wall Street Journal or MSN or others that maybe are media outlets that have used machine learning tools to actually create a lot of the content. Doesn't mean us, you know, I run a marketing agency as well. It doesn't mean we're out of business. 
it means if we don't invest in the right tools, others in time are going to take over and, you know, er erode our market share. So, those kinds of things. And I think of, um, you know, AI breaking data down into a process. And I think of um, Lexus, you know, with its luxury cars working with IBM Watson and, you know, really being able to automate a TV advert. And what it's doing, it's, it's not creative. This AI is not a human being that has cr real creative thought, but it goes and studies 10 years of award-winning adverts for handbags or some other luxury good. And it then makes patterns and correlates things in a way that we wouldn't be able to process that sheer volume of data and comes up with an incredible award-winning advert for, you know, for Lexus, all scripted by an AI. You mentioned that, I think you used the phrase that maybe AI is not creative. And this is something that I wanted to touch on in this podcast, because I'm interested to know whether you think AI will become more creative. So it helps us in creative process, but maybe we don't describe the AI solutions as creative independently. Do you think that that will become more creative and we'll start to see more creative AI solutions? Yes, I do. Um, we're talking about the people who create the training data and they will create more and more creative marketing packages that are all about that. And then with machine learning, the AI goes and learns and think of all the billions of data points in the world here. It's got a lot of material to learn from. So that's where we're at at the moment. The machine learning will get more and more creative, but you're also touching on something that might be 20 years down the line, 40, 50, we don't know, which is the ability of the machine to really do everything we can do and to really potentially even think itself creatively. Don't want to kind of get into that too much because we don't really know uh, if it's coming. And, you know, those that are interested in that, look at Ray Kurzweil and the singularity. And it's fascinating. It's scary. Um, we need to put frameworks and other things in place to avoid the potential very serious downsides of that. But, yes, I do. I think as more and more tools are on the market. I look at the moment at something like um, Microsoft with Office and, you know, Word and PowerPoint and all of the other suite or another provider. But I'm sure in time there will be creative packages using AI that will be very affordable, off-the-shelf kind of tools that will enable us to be extremely creative. You know, there are, I'm in business because there are a lot of people that don't know how to write and don't know how to create great social media content and feed their videos and their blogs and, and, and so on. And I think in time, there will be more and more tools that do a percentage of that for us. But just as when I went from traditional marketing to websites to digital, now to AI, what we're doing is we are evolving and the tasks we do change and it's our approach to that that's essential. And we aren't completely being eradicated. We are doing things differently. And I think it'll be quite positive because I think the hierarchies will flatten and somebody new coming into sales, marketing, customer experience will have huge opportunities. Because they won't be able to, they won't be forced to wait 10 years for a promotion or five years. They might come in and be way ahead of somebody who's been there 10 years because they know how intuitively to use all these incredible packages. Yeah, it feels to me like we're in an era. So we've discussed a little bit about AI copywriting on the podcast before, and that was maybe only a year or two ago and the advancements in G GPT-3. I think a lot of this comes down to your interpretation of what creativity is as well. Yes. And I think we might be in an era where people are redefining what creativity is. You were talking about customer messaging, which took me to copywriting. And I was thinking about, you know, five years ago uh, when we were talking about the original GPT-2, whenever that came out, 
and um, people were not convinced. And you started to see the integration of GPT-2 with things like chatbots. And people were like, oh, this is cool, but it wasn't quite right or wasn't quite working. And now we're seeing AI copywriting solutions. And we're like, you know, I've seen people take a step back and say, wow, this is actually pretty mind-blowing how creative it is starting to be. And um, I've also seen things like AI website builders, where you describe a little bit about how you want your website to look and feel into just some descriptors. And um, then suddenly you have a new website or at least a framework for a website. I'd consider that pretty creative. I agree. Uh, I agree. Yes. No, you're right. There's tools like Wix, W-I-X, website builders. There's, um, if you use MailChimp, for example, uh, then there are AI tools now within that and many of them for designs and logos. It's interesting though, you say, as you say, that word creative, it's meant to be, you know, using imagination or original ideas to create something, you know, inventive, um, but I think, as we all know, that there are aspects of that, aren't there? There's no such thing as an original idea, we're always yeah. saying. So I think, you know, that's where the AI can go and study the last 10 years of award-winning whatevers, you know, in order to learn from it and then come up with something or or to come up with a piece of award-winning music. You know, it hasn't well, it has sat there and composed it, yeah. not with thought, not with consciousness and sentience, but with data, with a brain. So I think it's um, that's what it's really doing, isn't it? It's coming up with something original based on a mix of things you know it mixes all of this incredible music and notes together to come up with something or these incredible words and research and and so on and i think therefore there is within all of that the human in the loop and that's what the focus is at the moment is that we need for a number of reasons for securing jobs for ethics and so on to have a human in the loop to ensure we don't have bias to ensure that we retain humanity, to ensure that we've got a way of dealing with our clients, to ensure explainability. Because if we're an insurance company and we've used the, the AI to say, right, that uh, postcode, that ethnicity, that age bracket means no, you can't have a um, you know an insurance policy or a mortgage. The person relaying that information back to the potential um, person who wants the mortgage or the bank account or the insurance policy needs to understand how they've reached that conclusion. So we've got to have a human in the loop. Um, And I think that's essential. Well, that leads me nicely into how I wanted to close this episode, which is all around trust and ethics in AI. And what stood out to me in just research about you and uh, your career is your involvement in the UK government task force for enterprise adoption of AI. So that's the first time I've discussed AI on this podcast. I've discussed ethics on this podcast before. And what comes up in a lot of conversations is people saying, we think this needs to be regulated. We don't know where we start. It happens at a government level. And I don't think there's a generally, uh, from what I understand, there doesn't seem to be a great awareness of this UK government task force for enterprise adoption of AI. So I'm really curious to just to learn a little bit more about why your role in that and the mission of that task force. Mm, no, it's a good question. There are many different groups, um, but yeah, let's talk for a minute about the a- APPG AI, so the All-Party Parliamentary Group AI. There are many um, APPGs for all different areas, but this one is for, as you say, the enterprise adoption of AI, and it was set up back in um, January of 2017. And its aim really is to address ethical issues, new industry norms for how you apply AI and machine learning and decision-making and automated reasoning and so on. And, you know, what we're trying to do is to understand how AI will impact the lives of UK citizens, organizations, and therefore, how should it be regulated? So how will health and energy and consulting and other services be traded? How should new models, business models be regulated? So it explores and comes up and and hears evidence from all around the world, from incredible academics, 
business people and so on. So regularly we meet and we used to meet face to face and all through the pandemic we've met virtually and there's typically it's fantastic and you can access this you know you can register and and watch it and so on um hearing evidence you know it's usually about seven minutes and it's really incredible evidence from these wonderful people which is all about policy and regulation um and there are uh task forces like the one i'm involved with and others that are about, okay, so how do we take that evidence? How do we apply that? How do we put forward a toolkit and so on? And they're the kind of things that uh, people like you know, BP and Deloitte and Barclays and other organizations that are part of it are there to you know, enable that to happen. And you've got people like Stephen Metcalf and Lord Tim Clement-Jones. Um, and as I say, this is not one party. These are all parties. So it's very democratic and very forward-looking. But you raised a really good point there about balancing innovation and regulation. What we don't want to do is to stifle innovation or we, and I mean that by, by we, the UK, will get left behind. You know, China, America, really very far ahead. The UK is sort of being looked at in recent years as the one of the sort of barometers for ethical AI. But maybe we've been slow to push, you know, ahead as in the same way that the Chinese and the Americans have with the adoption and so on. So it's it's a very, very difficult um, task. I see the balance in wanting to encourage innovation and having the right initiatives in place to encourage innovation at the same time being able to launch regulation. That's, re- that's a really tough balance. Um, I guess just on, on both of those points, both regulation and innovation at a government level, are there any innovation initiatives that you can point to that exist that maybe people might not be aware of or any that are on, on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, there have certainly been some incredible partnerships Going back um, a couple of years, you know, a partnership was set up and it was linked to the OECD countries. And it was a partnership from all of those countries coming together and saying, we recognize the need um, at a national level and an international level for all of us to communicate because AI goes across international boundaries of legal jurisdictions. It goes across data scientists working, multinational companies that need to operate in all those ways. So I think what we've seen is a a recognition that they need to come together and to safeguard humanity and to safeguard, um, you know, personal data And I think of GDPR and I think of that black box I mentioned and the need to make sure that if you're a company like TGI Fridays, you can do some incredible uh, smart marketing and smart sales, but I have to give you consent to use my data. So I think partnerships like that one that was announced a year or so ago with the OECD um, are about international um, almost like the need for an international treaty. When I think of the, you know, Geneva and other treaties, we need that for AI because otherwise the potential is, you know, we're talking here of, um, you know, with, with the Ukraine war, uh, pot- potential for chemical and so on. But what about robot warfare? So, you know, without getting too kind of depressing on that, you know, we do need internationally as communities to come together and to think about how, as Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking talked about, AI could be our greatest ever dream of, you know, eradicating disease and so on. We want to put effort into AI tackling big issues of climate problems and, you know, medicine and potential future pandemics. And without those kinds of cooperations and policies, we won't get to that. So that, I would say, is something to to look towards. And I would encourage everyone listening to be very proactive on this and to, in their companies, in their organizations, in their trade bodies, in their chambers of commerce, etc., 
to get involved because you can't sit back passively and wait for this to happen because often the law catches up at a slower pace than the way that the technology spirals ahead. Katie, I did not expect robot warfare on my agenda for 10 to 9 in the morning. I appreciate you covering all of that. Just one final question on that point. How far off um, in the UK, at least, do you think we are from more widely adopted regulation? Are you able to give any kind of indication or range uh, from your awareness? I'm not exactly aware of when that's likely to happen. I do think, I mean, already within GDPR, there's a clause for transparency of data. So we should be already adhering to elements of that. Um, I'm not aware of, um, I mean, there are frameworks and so on, but I'd say for, for widespread adoption to really take off in the next one to three years, we will see that coming down the line in the next couple of years, definitely. And those points you made about job titles and AI ethics advisors and Mm. so on, um, I think all of that is beginning to come to a head. And I think once we've settled down post-pandemic and we really start to plan that for the next couple of years, it's very much on the agenda um, in the next five years, I would say. Excellent. Katie, uh, thank you again for your time. It's been a really interesting episode to cover all of this. Uh, A reminder to anyone listening that Katie's books are AI Strategy for Sales and Marketing and Using Artificial Intelligence in Marketing. The links to those will be in the show notes. But Katie, before we ride off into the sunset, can you describe to our listeners where they can find you and your business? Thank you, Scott. Yes, absolutely. Best place to start is aiinbusiness.co.uk. So that's my website, aiinbusiness.co.uk. From there, you can find all the, the social media links. You can access the book and look at some sample, free sample pages and see the case studies and listen to the keynotes. So that's probably the best place to start. Excellent. And those links will be in the show notes too. What's left to be said is, Katie, thanks so much for your time. And this has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Take care.